Um, I thought I'd give you a, a cancer update. I, as you may or may not know, six years ago, diagnosed with cancer, and, and we've been fighting it off and on for those six years. And um, this last week, I had a scan, and uh, I had my last scan was in September, and in September, it still showed some cancer there, and, but at the point we were at, I determined not to, not to undergo treatment, and so the scan comes uh, this last week, and you know, you're always like, ooh, what's it going to be, those of you who know that, and so it's interesting because as I've had cancer, I've never really felt led by the Lord to fervently pray that he would take my cancer away. I've always felt led to, to pray, God, however you want to use this. You know, what happens to me is less important than how I handle it, so however you want to use this. But for whatever reason, in March, I felt the Lord nudging me to pray fervently that he would take it away. So Wednesday, I went to the doctor, and he told me the results of the scan, and he said that cancer's gone. So, amen. So, So while it's much more desirable for me to be with the Lord, it's more important for you that I remain. So, <laughs> so praise God. Praise God for his mighty hand. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study of Ephesians, and I'm so grateful to be doing this and looking at this idea of what does it mean to uh, live richly, even as we look at what does it mean that love obeys. So how do we live richly? And uh, today we're looking at the idea that you can live in rich peace, living in rich peace. There's a peace that comes to our hearts and to our lives through Jesus, and we can live in that peace richly. And so we're going to see in our text that Jesus is the peace that makes the two one. Jesus is the peace that, that makes the two one. And, and we're going to need to talk about that a little bit before we get started in here. And as we look at this, this, this amazing scriptures that have been entrusted to us, we look at this and we understand that there's a, there's a meta-narrative, if I could say it that way. There's, there's a, a theme that runs all the way through Scripture, and, and I would suggest to you that it's God's plan of redemption. It's his redemptive plan woven through Scripture and through salvation history. And so we find it through, in so many ways, through the covenants as, as we find him unveiling in, in Eden, the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and you know, all these big words, and you're like, hey, what do those mean? Well, there was Christmas three years ago. Go check out the CDs. You get into it all. But as you look through it, each one of these promises, these covenants that are made that are more and more and more revealing the redemptive plan of God, and it happens throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures, and then continues into what we call the New Testament. And so through this all, we see that God has a plan that he's working from before he put a stone in the foundation of the world to long after we can even imagine. He's got an eternal plan that he's working out. And this book for us represents how we can understand the world that we live in. And so this passage that we're looking at today, for me, 
was such an exciting passage because it brings so many of the different things of this redemptive plan of God together as we see that he has a plan that he's working. And as Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, it's a church that, remember, was planted in a synagogue, but then Gentiles were added in. And so the point in time when Paul's writing, more than likely there's more Gentiles than Jews in this congregation. And as they're gathered, he's writing to them to encourage them. He's writing from prison. He's in prison because of the Gentiles, because of the fact that he stands for for the Gentiles receiving the gospel. That's why he's in prison. We'll look at that when we move into chapter 3. But here, he's talking about how Jesus is the peace that takes Jew and Gentile, two, and brings them together as one. And it's really important for us to understand this. So let's dig in. In verse 11, uh, well, the first thing we see is that you who were far away are brought near in Christ. So you who were far away, and uh, who is that? Well, let's see. The verse, it says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So therefore, you know, therefore, since, you know, and that encompasses everything we've read up until this point, it's this wonderful truth of the fact that we've been saved, and specifically as we look at this book of Ephesians, the, the first three chapters... Paul is writing to you, and he's writing about us, and, and so it's this you, Gentiles, and us, he's talking about the Jews, and so as we look at this, he says, therefore, remember that ye, formerly you who are Gentiles, and it's interesting, this is maybe written 25, 30 years after the ascension of Jesus, and so he's calling these people to remember something. And he wants them to remember. And who does he want to remember? No, go back one. Uh, not that far yet. Can you go back one? Can't go back one. Yes, we can. All right, remember that you who are Gentiles. Okay, so, so what is a Gentile? And a Gentile in Scripture is anybody who's not Jewish. Okay, so basically, in God's economy, as he's working his plan of redemption throughout Scripture, he's got a chosen people, the nation of Israel. It's a people that he has chosen to, re to re reveal his redemptive plan. And so you've got the nation of Israel, and the Gentiles are every other nation. Any nation that's not Israel is a Gentile, or ethnos is the word in the original Greek here. So there's this understanding that when Paul is writing, he's saying, remember you who were any other nation other than Israel. Okay, and, and we understand that even as we look at that, they're uncircumcised. So there was this division that God had, had put in place when he said to Abraham that you should be circumcised. Now, what are they to remember? Well, they're to remember many things. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So they're to remember five things. And what are those five things? First, they're supposed to remember that they were separate from Christ. They were separate from Christ, separate from the Messiah. And what that means is that they were, they were separate from the fact that there was a promised king 
who's coming. He's the king of the Jews. And so the, the Gentiles were separate from that. And they were to remember that they were separate from the promised Messiah. And the Messiah was the one who would come to, to set free. And so they were separate from that. They had no idea they were coming. And they didn't know the promises that were contained in that. So they were separated from any hope of salvation. The next thing they were to remember is that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, from the commonwealth of Israel. As God had started his redemptive plan in Scripture, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Gentiles were excluded from being part of the nation. Okay, you were either in the nation of Israel or you were in the other nations. Okay, and so there was the, that was the division. And so when you look at this, they were excluded from that. They were excluded from the fact that the Jews were chosen by God. They were the firstborn among many nations. They had knowledge of the true God. They had miracles that were done for them. They had deliverances. And, and the Gentiles were excluded from all this. They had the Torah. They had the, the, the revelation of God. They had the temple where they could worship God. They had the Shekinah glory of God. The Gentiles were excluded from the fact that, that the Gentiles had the actual presence of God come into their midst, excluded from all that. And, and Paul is saying, remember you Gentiles. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. Number three, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were foreigners to these covenants. So these covenants that were given to the nation of Israel, the Gentiles weren't included in those. And these are, these are the covenants that we find in, in Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, the covenant that was made with David, that there would always be someone on his throne, the Mosaic covenant. And if we turn to Jeremiah 30 and 31, and we won't read the whole thing, but in 31, and I, I would challenge you, you know, there's some people... Who, who think that, that the church has replaced Israel or the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in the church. And, and we, we don't believe that here. We don't teach that here. There's a paper in the back. If you want to see where we stand on that, there's a paper in the back for those of you who'd like to read more deeply. But what we believe is that the Gentiles have been added in. And one of the places you can go to really get this clear, I believe, is Jeremiah 30 and 31. Because... If the church has replaced Israel, then what those who teach that are saying is that wherever it says Israel in the Old Testament, you can replace that with a church. And you can't read Jeremiah 30, 31 and, and put church in there and come up with that. So anyway, in, in 31, verse 31, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And that's what we celebrated here, right? Is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. But but watch something. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in, in their minds and write it on their hearts. So there's this new covenant. And so even as Jeremiah proclaimed that that promise, that covenant, the Gentiles were excluded from that, okay? They were foreigners to that covenant. And so they were without hope. 
Number four, without hope. So there's no hope. Listen, if you're trapped in this darkness that we looked at last week, permanent dots all over you, your sin trapped in that darkness under the ruler of the air, the prince of the air, under the pretender prince Satan, you have no hope of getting out. And so the Gentiles had no hope. They lived in a hopeless situation because hope came through the nation of Israel. And finally, they were without God in the world. So even as you look at it, they were without God in this world. So the nations didn't have the one true God. And so we see how Gentiles, over all the years, created other gods. They formed gods to worship. They, they worshiped in temples, and they, they mimicked, and Satan would mimic the worship of the one true God in, in other ways. But, but they weren't able to worship the one true God, so they made up gods like Zeus and Apollos and Thor and Lodi and, you know, the ones we pay money to go see now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll just leave that lie. So, we need to remember, because I'm assuming that probably we're predominantly Gentile here. We need to remember these weren't part of our lives before. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus has made it possible for us to be brought near. The second thing we see is that you who were far away and those who were near both have access to the Father. We both have access to the Father. And the next verse tells us, he himself is our peace. Jesus personifies peace. Who has made an end, or made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And so Jesus has brought an end to the hostility. In Romans, Paul says to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Now, which of those is harder? Right, a lot of times, isn't it harder to rejoice with those who rejoice? Because imagine you really want something and somebody else gets it, right? Does that ever happen to anybody? And you're like, I'm so happy for you. You can rip your eyes out right now. No, you know, and, and so, right, it's hard for that. And so this hostility, you see, and there's an illustration that, that probably the, the people at that time would have understood and, and it's the Temple Mount. So when you think about the Temple Mount, what you see as you look at this Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you see that out here in this outer passage, there's what's called the Court of Gentiles. Okay, and in between the Court of Gentiles, and then as you move closer into the Holy of Holies, there's a wall here that divides that courtyard of Gentiles from the Holy of Holies, from where the Jewish people could go. And so that wall was about four and a half feet high. So you could imagine the Gentiles coming up to that wall and looking in on the outside, looking in, okay? In some ways, it would have been kinder if it was 10 feet tall, so you didn't realize what you were missing, right? But they would come and they would look in. And the reason for that is because God wanted them to be able to look in. He wanted them to be able to see the nation of Israel was to be an example they were, they were to be radiating what it meant to be uh, worshiping the one true God. 
And as they worshiped the one true God, the nations, the Gentiles, were to look in on that and be drawn to that. And so the truth is that the law provided an opportunity for a witness. But what happened was instead, it became a tool for the Jewish people to look down on the Gentiles, okay? Now, it's not this wall that Paul is talking about being, being taken down. Rather, in our verses, he says that it's the wall of hostility. If I could have the verse. Destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. See, the law actually had regulations that separated the Jew and Gentile. Because in order for a Jewish people, people, person to be clean, he couldn't have contact with a Gentile person in certain situations. There were dietary regulations and all of these things that were designed to keep the Jewish people pure. And so that was to be desired, but instead, it became a tool. And so it caused hostility. But in Jesus, this has been taken away. Because the righteousness that was sought by the law was now found in Jesus. And Paul writes about that in Philippians when he says, what is, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So now the law doesn't divide Jew and Gentile anymore because the righteousness of Christ unites us. And we see that in the next verse. It says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace. And in one body, and we're going to see this uh, as we continue to go through Ephesians, we're going to see this idea of one body brought even more clarity to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So it's this idea of he's reconciling us to him through Jesus, but he's also reconciling us to each other as Jew and Gentile, as the nation that has been chosen and those who were on the outside looking in. He came near and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. See, peace Peace comes from Jesus making the two one. For through him, <coughs> we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is a significant verse. For through him, we both have access to the Father. To the Father by one spirit. Sometimes I'm asked, who do you pray to? Well, in Scripture, the pattern is that we pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Okay, now does that mean we can't talk to Jesus? No, of course we can talk to Jesus. But predominantly, we pray to the Father. So there's this idea of Father in Scripture. Now, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's somewhat developed. God is the Father of, of the Israelites. But as we get to the New Testament, when Jesus comes as the Son of God, it begins to get developed even more. Remember, it says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, adopted children. So, so we get to go to God as Father. We have access to the Father. And notice the Trinity in this verse, 
Through him, through Jesus, we have access to the Father by one spirit, by the Spirit. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit involved in this. So here's the idea. Do you ever think about the throne room of God? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I pray, I think I'm headed into the throne room of God. And I try to picture what that looks like. And, and, you know, I mean, we've all seen movies where they have these big, ornate throne rooms and these huge thrones. And we read in Scripture, and it's like flashes of lightning or rainbows and, and all of these things. And you try to imagine Isaiah when he saw in the, in the, in the train of his robe fill the temple. And you're, like, trying to put visual on that. But, but I kind of think of going into this huge throne room, right? And it's like you open the door the door opens and, and you walk in and, and you look and there's God, right? And here you walk in and, and, and you're walking in and, and you are before God who is the power, ultimate power, sovereign God. You can ask anything because you see, not only do I come in to the throne room of God, My daughter had a baby on Thursday. Yeah, maybe, maybe you knew that. So what that means is, Karen and I have been watching our grandson, Grayson, who's 14 months old. Okay? It's great. Oh, yeah. So I come home now, right? I come home, and he's waiting for me. Okay? And, and he sees me, and he's like, Oh, he comes running, and he wants to jump into my arms, okay? See, this is, this is where it gets exciting. See, I come into the throne room of God, but I'm coming to see my father. Daddy father is what Scripture tells us. It's this intimate understanding. And so I throw open the door, and I bow before him. I go, God, Dad, and I go running up to him, see? And I run up. And I jump and I, and, I, and I grab him and he grabs me. You see, because he's so glad I'm there. Because I have access to the Father. I have, I have access to God as my Father. Oh, and I can ask him anything I want. And so he nudges me. He nudges me to ask Once in a while, I get excited about some things. <laughs> so, you have access to the Father. Finally, <laughs> you who are far away and those who are near are being built together to become a dwelling place of God. So we're going to unpack this quite a bit more in, the, in the, next, the next passages as we come to those. But it says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Because of Jesus, because of the cross, we are no longer foreigners and strangers. We are fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So we come together into this new building. What that means is we're added in. So the paper in the back will talk to you, explain about addition theology. 
in addition to Israel, God has a priesthood. And First Peter talks about that, the priesthood of believers, that he gathers from all nations who fulfill an analogous role to Israel and have analogous promises. How many of you are Googling analogous? Yeah, right, okay. Um, similar. We have, we, have, we, have, we have a role that is similar to Israel's, promises that are similar. They are not a literal nation among the nations like Israel, but metaphorically called a nation. They have analogous promises, but not the same ones. And they are raised, we are raised to a status equal to the Jewish believers in Yeshua, and we become one with them. Addition theology leaves the promises of Israel intact and reads them straightforwardly. So it's this idea that the church, the word we use, church, what it means is a called out group, a community of those who are following Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. We're, we're called out and we're a nation, but we're not a literal nation in the same way that Israel is a literal nation. And so these promises that God has with this literal nation of Israel remain to be fulfilled very soon, even as they're coming back to Israel as dry bones, soon to be coming back spiritually. But, but we look at that and we see that we, we have a role that's similar. We've been brought in metaphorically called a nation. So together, we're being built together to become a dwelling place of God as he continues to unfold his redemptive plan in history. So what? So what? This becomes so exciting for us. For me, to be able to understand this and to see this, that God is continuing to work out his plan for Israel because how important is it for you to know that God is faithful to that which he said he will do? And as we look at these promises to Israel in the Old Testament, we see how he's bringing the two together as one, adding us in, grafting us into these promises, even as he continues to fulfill the promise for literal Israel, we see that God is faithful. And if God is faithful to all that he said in the Old Testament, amen, then we can be confident that he's faithful to the promises he's made to us. It doesn't depend on us. Rather, it depends on him and his promises. So what difference does that make in our life today? Well, we're in an interesting time, aren't we? We're in a time where there's this growing anti-Semitism. And if we don't understand the role that we have as we come together as followers of Jesus, together building up this building that allows us to declare to the world that God has a plan for redemption. We carry that. That's ours. It's been entrusted to us now. In the same way it was entrusted to Israel, a similar way, it's been entrusted to us. And if we're not careful, that which provides us with an opportunity to be a witness will instead become a tool to look down. See, if, if we have people in the world who don't know Jesus as our Savior, we begin to look down on them. We're missing the opportunity to be a witness. So how can we let this be known? So what? So how do I live out my, my role in the redemptive plan of God? And how can I make the peace of Jesus be known? How does that play out in each one of our lives? Oh God, Help us with this, please. Search us in the midst of this. Help us know those places where you're 
looking to use us. Remember that we have access to you as Father in the throne room of God, and there is nothing that is impossible for you, God, as we come to you. Thank you. Help us shine for you, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.